This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Rachel Cerati. To describe Rachel as a multi-platform writer, producer, author, teacher, does not quite accurately encompass all the ways in which she covers deeply important topics and communicates to the world. She is an award-winning author, photographer, educator, and audio producer, and she is currently the inaugural storyteller-in-residence for the USC Shoah Foundation, where she produces and co-hosts the Memory Generation podcast. Her critically acclaimed debut memoir, titled We Share the Same Sky, a memoir of memory and migration, was just released. And it's my great good fortune to have her here to talk with me today. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted that you're here, and it's just going to be so fun to talk with you. Your work is remarkable and has this broad platform on it, So, or underneath it, I guess, is the way we think. Um, so I, I just want to lead off by talking about you're fairly young, and in a fairly young life, you seem already to have been cast in the role to bear witness to a great many large life experiences. Many people have, of course, but few have turned these experiences into a multi-platform career that includes photojournalism, writing, podcasting, and teaching. So let's go back a bit and see if we can recreate the creation of this eye of yours, as well as describe how you choose to relate what you see. So I'm thinking of the fact that in 2009, you were in college studying photojournalism. So what was the appeal of the camera for you at that age? Sure. Well, I'll say that I actually wasn't studying photojournalism. I was studying communications because my goal was to get out of college as quickly as possible. And any (laughs) journalism track had like a hierarchy and communications didn't. So that was my avenue. But I was already actively like working and dedicated to being a photojournalist during college. I kept trying to skip steps. But I actually got into photography when I was in high school. I grew up in the Boston public school systems, which did not have a great arts program or many opportunities. And then just before high school, my parents moved me and my brother literally less than a mile away into a suburb called Brookline. And there, you know, I started high school there and there was every type of art possibility and option. And I ended up just kind of by accident choosing a darkroom photography course. It sounded interesting. And mm-hmm. that was <laughs> that was the direction I began on. So even in high school, I did an independent track in photography and somehow managed to like get my schedule to be that I wouldn't go to school till like three hours late because between the newspaper and the darkroom, I had all these like independent projects going that fulfilled class credits. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> kind of been replicated in my professional life, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, so getting into college, you know, that just continued to grow for me. Okay. So I, I was looking at the timeline of your many awards and I see that you had a solo show in Boston when you were in your early 20s. And I started to continue to wonder about that camera and your storytelling 
And in previous interviews with writers, as well as in my own writing, I've explored the role of the notebook, that sort of singular object Mm -hmm. we hold in our hand as a reporter. It can be a shield, it can be an entry pass, it can be a confidant, it can be a lot of things. But I wonder about that role of the lens um, in terms Mm -hmm. of putting it between you and the world. Does it separate you or does it bring you closer? Oh, I think it does both at the same time. And that's kind of the magic of the camera. And one of the things that I love about it is that simultaneously it protected me from many very mm-hmm. difficult emotions or things that would normally scare me. It gave me this mm-hmm. kind of, you know, <laughs> sense of protection. But at the same time, it was the way that I was able to walk into so many communities and homes and people's lives. Like the camera was such a tool of communication. And so much of my work started and continued in other countries where I didn't speak the language. Maybe I had a few words, but it was not a language that I could grow a relationship in. But with the camera, I could. So when I was you know, living in someone's home and trying to photograph their life and learn about who they were, the way I would communicate with the kids was by like taking portraits and showing them the back of the camera and learning the words for like one more, you know, to like have a game about it. <laughs> yeah. And so it just it just became this like really valuable tool for me as like a purpose. Like it gave me a purpose yeah. and no matter where I was, I had a reason to be there and I think that was really good for me emotionally and like totally fueled my curiosity. Yeah, I wondered about that. It's a portal on some level and and you go so many places and it's there with you throughout this book. Yeah. We witness it many, many times. And we witnessed this whole idea of recording and looking really dramatically early in your story when you ask your grandmother, Hannah, if you can record her tale. She's a Holocaust survivor and the only one in her family alive at the end of the war. And when she dies in 2010, you discovered this archive of her materials, photographs, letters, journals, diaries, deportation and immigration papers, childhood report cards. And much of this material had to be translated, meaning it was not immediately available to you. So there's lots of obstacles to this, but you say in this beautiful book that that you become obsessed with this material. So let's talk about that. You know, that eye that leads us to become obsessed. Writers have to believe in their stories, but obsessed? Yeah. How did you keep <laughs> keep lit and stoke the fire of that obsession? It's, it's a great question that I have to ask myself sometimes because, you know, the book and the podcast were really the culmination of really a decade of work. Now I'm continuing on with that work. It just looks very different now, but really this kind of decade of exploration and spent a lot of years as a nomadic journalist, you know, and a very excited photographer running around with this big backpack that has now caused my back problems, I'm realizing. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, why am I young with back problems? It's like, oh, because you carried a 50 pound bag around with you in Converse Chucks for most of your 20s. That's why. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, my grandmother's story just took me in, in the sense that I just kept wanting to know more. Mm -hmm. And that was for part of it, was that with every new thing I learned, I had a new character come in and I wanted to know about their life. So with like every layer that, you know, got peeled back, another one got put over, you know, so I'm trying to figure out that space and just let it go. And also nobody was funding this work 
for so many years that like I had this kind of permission to keep going with it. Like nobody was asking me to be done with it. Nobody was waiting for me to submit a manuscript or to have a podcast done, like none of that. So really it became this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And as that progressed over the years and my own life unfolded, which is told in the work that I do as well, my grandmother's story started to take a very different role in my life. So I'd say for like half of that decade, it was very much me going into her world to better understand history, to start figuring out how to be, you know, a documentary storyteller, right? This was my first big project. So I was in a big Mm -hmm. exploration phase of what is my voice. And then Mm -hmm. in the second half of this decade, I really had to bring her story into my world to help get through a lot of personal challenges. And so this became really interesting to me of like how stories change over time. And I got really fascinated by memory and started looking at my grandmother's diaries differently. So the first time I read them, I was in my early 20s and starting to try to, you know, make sense of all this history and really come to terms with what does it even mean to go through the Holocaust and, you know, big historical questions. And then later on, as time goes forward, I'm rereading these pieces of writings and noticing things I didn't notice the first time around because I'm a different person. So things struck me Mm -hmm. differently. And this relationship that we have with the past is something that has continued to keep me so entrenched in this type of work. Like I love that stories keep changing and I find it to be a very beautiful piece of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. And, and the story changes, as you said for you, as you grew and along the way, and I'm not sure where exactly you see your story and that of your grandmother's connected in ways. And tell us please about that dawning I doubt it was one particular moment, maybe it was, but that realization that there are similarities, that you're helping each other along in some way. Writers have these moments of dawning. We live for them. But sometimes we have to keep them to ourselves until we have proof. You know, they're, if you try to pitch this to your parents or a loved one, they're kind of, these ideas are kind of met with, oh, indul- if you're lucky, just indulgent sort of withering stares. They're usually met by a no from an agent, but as you said before, you were liberated from that because there was no one yeah. waiting. And sometimes you get a mere tolerant nod from someone who loves you. So let's talk about that dawning, if you would, at that reassurance for you that your tales were I- intertwined. How did you feed that? Well, I think it was one of the first questions I went into this work with, which is, everyone says that this history matters to me. And I know it does, right? You like You know in your bones when something impacts you and matters to you. But I think sometimes it's less clear of how, how does it impact Mm -hmm. me? Like in what way is this changing my own relationship with the world, my identity, my responsibility? That's a big one. Um, And -hmm. so I think I went in with that question to start with. And I think it was a very clear for me because this was my grandmother. So this is my family history. And so we're talking about my great grandparents and, you know, all, all these other people. And I'm in Europe and meeting individuals who perhaps very distantly and maybe not through, you know, a biological connection I have a relationship with, even if I don't know them. Mm -hmm. And so that was Mm -hmm. obvious. It wasn't until I started to get older, have deep human experiences that were both beautiful and hard and sometimes beautifully hard that 
her mm-hmm. story started to have a really different impact in the sense that I was really leaning on her words. So she became mm. like, my grandmother was a really gifted writer. I always say that had she grown up in a different time and place, she would have been able to do the work that I do <laughs> beautifully. And her words became like my teacher. They, they became my writing mm-hmm. teacher in many ways. Her words became my therapy. <laughs> they became mm-hmm. my justifications. They became my questions. And so I was like living against this backdrop of this beautifully explored life that my grandmother had given as a gift to the next generation. We're not talking one or two diaries here. We're talking about her telling one story in real time when she's 14 and then me having another diary of hers 50 years later where she reflects back on that experience. And that type of patience to understand a story as it unfolds over one's life is incredible insight and really becomes this very useful thing to have in life. <laughs> you know, I say thing because it depends how you package it, of mm-hmm. perspective where you're like, oh, I'm going mm. through something really, really difficult right now or really, really wonderful. In the mm-hmm. future, I know this will not be here. You know, this too shall pass, the good and the bad. And being able to have that perspective of like, oh, my grandmother went through like the unimaginable I can get through this. Like everything just started infiltrating into my life. And, you know, I set out to go travel and do all this work when I was the same age that she was when she came to America after 11 years of being a stateless refugee and the only survivor. And so, you know, just even the age (laughs) piece of it really felt like she was having a lot of human experiences that were not necessarily war related, that were just human related. And I was having a lot of human mm-hmm. experiences and it was just really nice conversation. And it sounds weird to say this, but like all throughout my twenties, I got to have this intimate conversation with my grandmother who had already passed away. And so yeah. that was really cool to me. <laughs> it was really, really cool to me. And it works in a book form. It works in a podcast form. And it's fascinating to think about how does this information started to inform you? And I'm going to kind of flip the question around now because along the way to turning this material into what would eventually become the first podcast, the first ever narrative podcast based on a Holocaust survivor's testimony, you were living your life, as you said. Mm-hmm. And I spoke of the range of things to which you have borne witness, but you were widowed at 27, mm-hmm. just one yeah. month after your wedding celebration. I would say 11 11 months after we were married, one month after the celebration. Yeah. Yep. And on your website, you led us into this storyline in an ongoing series of photographs that tells the story of women under 40 who have lost their partners. And so you've told us how your grandmother helped carry you through the bad and the good. And I wonder how did the experience of loss and the documentation of tragic change inform you in your role of bearing witness to her story? Well, I don't know how I would have gotten through that loss, which was very sudden. My husband, Sergio, passed away from a heart attack when he was 28, so it was like a statistical anomaly. (laughs) Um, And he was Polish and came from Europe. And so there was, you know, he had offered me this whole wonderful connection to my grandmother as well, which was unintentional. But by giving me a home and a family in Europe, I suddenly had this, you know, this other connection to the place where my family had to flee from. Having already done so many years of work with my grandmother's story at that point, because remember, I started this when I was 20 and Mm -hmm. I was widowed when I was 27. So I had seven years to confront of asking myself, like, how could I have told my grandmother's story? 
for mm. all these years, not knowing the feeling of grief. And mm. I remember thinking that when I was sitting in the hospital and I write that in the book because it was a very stark feeling for me where I say like, I felt like a fraud. Like I, I you know, what even right did I have? I mean, it was, it was shaking everything for me of what right do we have to tell anybody's story? How do we think that yeah. we can understand? And then that really leaned itself into this thing that I'm still exploring, which is, you know, what language do we have to use when we tell other people's stories? Because we, we all, we will, this is how, and the beautiful thing about humanity is that we pass down stories and intergenerational storytelling and it's wonderful. And it's like the greatest gift I think that can be given from one generation to the next. But, you know, what is the appropriate language to use when you retell someone else's memories while having total recognition and respect for the fact that you'll never actually know how they felt. And that yeah. was a big turning point there for me. Go. And yeah. And so when I went out and started doing the widowhood series, it was actually really incredible because I was simultaneously still doing this story about my grandmother, like working on this and this story takes me all across America. And so I was traveling across America and at the same time, photographing all these women and all of this experience, I, you know, and I, I like to say the wisdom I've received from survivors, which is I've been very lucky to know a number of them, started to really have an impact in the way that I was talking to these other young women who had lost their person, not having anything to do with the Holocaust. It had everything to do mm. with like, how do you move forward and grief and strength yes. and, and all of these questions. And so, you know, you start to see these connections where you're like, oh, there is nothing about war. That's not it. We're talking about a very different human emotion that connects us now between like this past and this present. Yeah, that's, be that's a beautiful answer and so helpful because life goes on, you know? What, is, what does John Lennon teach us? Life is what happens while you're busy <laughs> making other plans. And you don't get to yeah. separate them. They nest inside one another and you might as well let them inform you because oh, yeah. they're trying to. And it's, and right? it's beautiful they're, and they're it's rich. To. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. that, that's, that that's one of the great gifts that I get is like, just because you go through something tragic or traumatic, painful, completely that changes you, uh, that changes your perspective doesn't mean that moving forward, you don't get joy and happiness and pleasure. But I think one of the themes that came up a lot between those two communities of people that's, you know, still when I work with both these communities of people is, you know, the, the guilt that's felt about being happy yes. again after something was really terrible and constantly mm -hmm. trying to navigate this space of like, I want to stay joyful. And how do I do yes. that? And my, my grandmother was a great teacher for that as well. Your grandmother is quite the character, and I'm going to let people <laughs> buy the book and read about her green hair at one point. That, yeah, for my bat mitzvah. swearing yeah. at one point. Yeah, for your bat mitzvah, yeah. she comes in green yeah. hair. Yeah. yeah, her grandmother comes to her bat mitzvah in green hair. Let me just say that right now, and if you don't go buy the book right this second online for that one detail, let me tell you also, she she learns to swear like a stevedore in foreign languages, and it's just really quite, kind of wonderful. Yeah. So, but these themes that you're writing about. These are the biggest of themes, the Holocaust, your grandmother's extraordinary tale of survival, the death of a young marriage, the death of this wonderful young man, any of which could have gotten mired in mere reverence, which of course we can have, but which of course mm -hmm. can prevent really good reporting, fair assessment and a critical eye for how to curate through one's life. Reverence is a poo, it's a pothole. So guided by reverence, I think we put in everything. You know, we don't curate. We load the reader up or the listener up with too much and we lose our perspective as storytellers. 
How did you avoid it? I think that, you know, originally, I think it goes back to what I wanted to do originally in life, which was be a photojournalist, because, you know, I, I wouldn't use the word journalist to describe myself now, but I was trained and attracted to that set of like ethics in documentary storytelling, where I really wanted to be honest and tell a true story. But I also really wanted like a rich, deep, nuanced, layered, complicated story. Like I love stories where you have two truths that contradict each other. I I just find it to Mm -hmm. be the most honest replication of life. And I didn't start off this story thinking I was going to tell my own story. Like I had no plans to be a character in this. Mm-hmm. And when I started to think about myself as a character in this, I was thinking through the lens of like, I'm going to publish a travel book. Like this is, you know, I mean, this is before I'm married and before, you know, I'm widowed or anything, you know, before the refugee crisis happens, this is before 2016, like the world was very different and I was young and I was like, I'll try to be a travel log. And so I was like, Oh, I'll be first person narrative, but you know, it wasn't going to have this at that point, the project didn't have the depth it has now. And then I think moving Mm -hmm. forward, when I started to realize what this was going to be, and when I say that in regards to like the We Share the Same Sky podcast and book, it was this question of how do I use myself and my story as a connection to the past? Because I did enough teaching at that point of young people too that I, I had a good understanding of what stories engaged people in conversation. And that played Mm -hmm. a lot into my decision-making as a writer. And Mm -hmm. I was very, 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 very careful of like, I really don't want to be navel-gazing. And I think I was more (laughs) hyper-nervous about that than anything else where this is not a story about me. I will be honest and vulnerable and let you know what I experienced and what I felt and who I met in purpose of the story. And the story could have been Mm -hmm. written in a lot of different ways, but in in the way that I chose to tell it. But any fact about myself, any experience that I was kind of center stage with had to, I had to have a reason for it to be in there. So I think that Mm -hmm. that that was part of being able to decipher, you know, because that same type of objectivity had to be used for the way I talked about my grandmother, for the way I talked about my late husband, Mm -hmm. for the way I talked about many of these. I mean, most of the people in this book have passed away and I very much value these people. Like they are so on such a pedestal in my life. And it's Mm -hmm. really strange to publish a memoir in your early thirties and have most of the people in the book no longer here. And that's just in the past few years. A lot of people passed away. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but... No, it does. You avoided the reverence trap. The reverence trap is huge, especially if everybody's dead. It's huge, and that's all there is to it. And you do. I I, I read very carefully through the lines, making, you know, just wondering how you were going to avoid it. And and when I say I read through, I I read through this beautiful book, We Share the Same Sky, a a memoir of memory and migration, and and we'll put lots of links to it in the transcript. And it's a wonder of reporting, writing, and editing and not falling into the reverence trap. (laughs) And we touched on this a little bit at the very beginning of the interview, but I want to dive a little more deeply into it. You make this great statement, this great bold statement at the opener of your book. You declare that the story you have striven to tell is ever-changing. And I hear this from memoir writers all the time, that looking in the rearview mirror, the scene changes daily. So Mm -hmm. give the writers listening to this some advice on managing this reality. Well, let's see. 
I think becoming peaceful with this place of understanding that the way you're writing the story is the way that you're writing it right now. And just like you're building, you know, a a lens into someone else's experience or a period of history, um, you know, you're also, you know, building the space for yourself as the writer in this moment. And Mm-hmm. kind of being excited by the fact that if you were to write this 10 years from now, you would see it differently. I think that once you get over the hump of, is this the best way to tell the story? Because there's many best ways to tell a story, right? I would say like, this is mm-hmm. a story of a person in a period of history. If my, any of my cousins decided to take this on and write their own version, you know, whatever that were to look like, they would have totally different memories of my grandmother. Right. And so I think just like really appreciating that like this is kind of a little time capsule of how this feels right now. Mm-hmm. And one example I can give is that, I mean, I don't have children and I definitely don't have grandchildren. And I know that if I get to play those roles in my life, I'm going to turn to my grandmother's story and completely have a revelation of like, well, I don't know, say revelation, but let's say an overflow of emotion of what it would be like to send my child away. Mm. Like that's just, I, I can't, my, my great-grandparents sent my grandmother away when she was 14 years old in 1939. Mm. And the, her younger mm. brother couldn't go because he was too young. And, you know, I build out this whole vibrant scene, both in the podcast and the book of them at the train station and saying goodbye. And I use a lot of words of like, I imagine it would look like this because I don't know what it exactly looked like. So I, you know, what I write is how I would imagine it being. And that's a way to be able to visualize a history I don't have, you know, factual reporting on. Mm -hmm. And I know that like when cousins of mine read that piece of the book who have kids, you know, they told me it was like, it was so gut wrenchingly painful for them to think about. But like, I just know that's not a emotion I can access. And I learned that when my husband died, was that there are just mm-hmm. certain doors of emotions I can't walk through right now. And that's totally okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't make me bad at my job. It just oh. means that I, you know, I got spaces I can see and spaces I can't. And that's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Great answer. I love that. I interview a lot of memoir writers and I tend to ask them all this one question. So let me ask you, what okay. are we doing when we ask a memoir writer to go back into a trauma? Are we asking them to reanimate it, relive it, re-inhabit it? look at it with great distance and perspective. What, what do you think this process requires? Well, I almost want to answer this not as the perspective of being a memoir writer, but from the perspective of the work that I do with USC Shoah Foundation, which just very briefly mm-hmm. is an institute based in Los Angeles, that it's the institute that Spielberg started after he made Schindler's List. And he and a wonderful team of humans went out and documented, took oral histories, testimony from over 50,000 Holocaust survivors, my grandmother being one of them. That's how you hear her in the podcast is from that tape that was recorded Mm -hmm. in 1998. So I work with USC Shoah Foundation as their storyteller in residence. And I've worked with them in some capacity for a number of years. And what I get to do on my day to day is I work with their, now their archive is over 55,000 testimonies of not just Holocaust survivors, Mm -hmm. but people who survived or witnessed what happened in Rwanda, Armenia, Cambodia, um, Guatemala, Rohingya, you know, people who've gone through horrible atrocities. And so what I do day in and day out is listen to these stories. And these are oral histories. Mm -hmm. And so what it is, is we interview these people because they went through trauma. 
and mm-hmm. you know you learn like what is the appropriate way to ask someone to share and then why you know why why do we want these stories and then learning how to give somebody the space to feel what they're going to feel and not challenge the way they feel and yeah. i think that you know and and i know that that goes for rain too there's lots of people i interviewed who have gone through very difficult things that are not part of of that position i'm in you know other refugees and and all these widows and everybody and i think that more often than not people really want to be heard and they want to be seen and they want to they want to feel like what they experienced meant something mm-hmm. and when you ask somebody why do they want to tell their story i think it's such an important question cuz understanding their reasoning for why they feel to you know the desire to share, retell, replay gives us a lot of insight mm-hmm. in like what to do with that story. Yes. And I think it's a respect question of like, how do you want your story told? How do you want your story remembered? And then giving them the space to just talk, you know, to, to mm-hmm. make them feel validated. You know, I, and I know that when my grandmother was dying, she, you know, one of the things that I remember very vividly, you know, and I was a college kid at this time, her just constantly asking the question of why did I survive? And it was a very haunting question. And I've always felt like that that has always been a, like a big part of why I've done this work kind of subconsciously, but also consciously sometimes depending on the day is like, I want to answer that question because it matters now yes. because like what you experienced helps me. And I'm not saying that's why, but I can at least help give some purpose even if she isn't here to witness that. Mm. Lovely. I'm so glad you mentioned the Shoah Foundation. They, they, their mission is, is to develop empathy, understanding, and respect through testimony. And in your role as the inaugural storyteller in residence and in your podcast, The Memory Generation, you and your co-host, uh, the oral historian Stephen D. Smith, dig into these testimonies, as you say. And it's a remarkable responsibility. And it gives you enormous access into what I think is one of life's great questions. And as we wrap this up, I, I, I have to ask you this. Mm-hmm. What becomes of those of us who survive something? Mm. Well, hopefully we get to go on and have really enjoyable lives or at least a compilation of really enjoyable experiences along this journey called life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's person to person. I do a lot of work with communities that are children and grandchildren of survivors because I'm I'm very interested in intergenerational storytelling and I'm love learning about how stories are passed from one generation to the next. And I love learning how culture comes into play. You know, Jewish community has a very strong emphasis on that. It's a value, Mm -hmm. you know, it's called Lador Vador from generation to generation. Other communities, that's not necessarily the case, right? So that that changes the relationship. But I, I, I think that the answer gets to change over time, right? Like there's different Mm -hmm. periods of time where our story has a different purpose, and sometimes we put our stories or our traumas, our pains, our lived experiences, sometimes we put them in a box inside of us and put it a little far away and then we pull it out when we need it. And sometimes that box is always open. And I think that's one of the things that I'm learning and becoming content with, with within my own widowhood and within my own grief is that some days I don't feel super connected to the identity of being widow and sometimes it's the only thing that I can think about. And I've kind mm. of come to respect that. <laughs> I think I used to fear it. And I've kind of come to respect that, you know, everybody goes through something and 
depending who's around us and the support we feel and how busy we are and how distracted we are and, you know, what conversations were, you know, our energy levels, how well we slept, like it plays a different role. Mm. And you know, that changes the story. <laughs> so it, it changes the story. Yeah. yeah. That's so generous. I so appreciate that answer. And I'm so grateful for you for coming along. Thank you, Rachel. I, I'm Thank really you. honored to have you here. You're so welcome. And go sell a bazillion copies of this book. Uh, <laughs> I will try. I will try. It's my first go with, with publishing a book. So I'm learning the business as I, as I go forth into it. <laughs> okay. Well, that was Rachel Cerati. See more on her at rachelcerati.com. Her new book is We Share the Same Sky, a memoir of memory and migration, available wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, where I offer online classes on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to Cordy and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 